Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. Good morning, Jim. I hope you've had a, a good day so far. Well, not very much has happened. Uh, I was worried that last night's high winds would knock my bin over, but it survived. <laughs> so I'll take that as a win, which probably means I should really have a bit more ambition in my life. I think that's a perfectly reasonable worry, Jim. I, I totally relate to that. Um, and always be grateful when bad stuff doesn't happen. Uh, that's an important principle in life, I feel. Well, if we survive this episode, then we can both heave another uh, sigh of gratitude because this is going to be a sensitive topic. It is indeed. We're talking about the Christian command to love our enemies. In Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's been called the most radical ethical system ever uttered in human history, Jim. And in this conversation, we're going to ask if that command includes the need for us to love terrorists. It's a particularly sensitive topic um, right now, Jim, because just a couple of days ago in London, we experienced yet another terrorist attack. Well, at the outset, Ollie, I want to acknowledge that you have much more expertise in this area than I have. Um, You completed some postgraduate studies on violence, terrorism and security. And I spent an hour this morning reading your dissertation on the government's attempts to thwart the radicalization of individuals within Muslim communities in the UK. And it is a really complicated situation. And I thought you did a great job in pointing out the incoherence of the government's response. There's a kind word, Jim. I'm surprised you actually lasted an hour. I I attempted to read over it again last night, and honestly, it it bored me to tears. Um, But it it is a significant question, a hugely significant question, um, because bad ideas and evil ideas uh, are disseminated so quickly these days over the internet, in that online space, and people are essentially groomed to carry out acts of atrocious evil um, against the public. And it seems to me that that in many ways, uh, the government don't have a clear understanding of what radicalization even is. I mean, the phenomenon of terrorism is really complicated. If we'd been holding this conversation 200 years ago, we might have called the, the episode, Love Your Enemies, Even Napoleon Bonaparte, because the conflict in our minds would have been the Battle of Waterloo, which was fought in 1815. But in that battle, two groups of professional soldiers lined up against each other and fought to the death. Yeah, that's so that's quite a different scenario because the, the point you're making is that there was a, a clear conflict nation against nation and the soldiers involved wore a uniform clearly distinguishing which side they were on and they were acting as instruments of the state. Why does that actually matter though, Jim? It matters because the Bible makes a clear distinction between the individual and the state. It nowhere says that the state is to love its enemies. In fact, it explicitly gives the state authority to maintain order and justice. I mean, take... One of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. Anyone who broke that commandment by committing premeditated first-degree murder was executed. So clearly the state had a role given by God to maintain social justice. When we get to the New Testament, the state is explicitly given authority by God to punish those who do evil. Paul says in Romans 13, The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. The one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, 
agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Yeah, that, that verse in, those verses in Romans 13 are pretty unambiguous. And they must mean that instruments of the state are politicians, lawyers, judges, and policemen do have the authority to put down evil and maintain a just, peaceful society. I guess the question that then arises is, does this apply to soldiers as well? We often describe wars as a fight between the goodies and the baddies. But sometimes the baddies are reacting because the goodies used to be baddies. Now, I'm not actually sure there is such a thing as a just war, although, of course, many of them have a clear moral imperative. The Bible says that war is just an inevitable consequence of life in a fallen world. But it is possible to act honourably and ethically even in war. When Roman soldiers got saved under the preaching of John the Baptist, they came to him and asked what they should do now that they had repented and had entered the kingdom of God. And Luke 3 records the conversation that the soldiers asked him, And what should we do? John replies, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, the Romans were an invading imperial army. But notice that John doesn't tell them to resign their commissions and leave the army. He tells them to act ethically in the situation in which they find themselves. So it seems to me that the Bible makes a clear distinction between the instruments of the state, not just politicians, lawyers and judges and policemen, but soldiers as well, a distinction between instruments of the state and the individual. The state has a duty to protect the innocent from evil and justice. Some people listening might respond to that, that it, it makes Christians into this subservient group of yes-men um, who just go along with the state, even when it's doing evil things. How would you respond to that, Jim? Well, remember that when the Apostle Peter told Christians to recognize the state's authority, he was writing to people who were suffering under Nero. And you can't get much more evil than that. But he wasn't advocating subservience or cowardice. He was just saying that we should accept the state's right to punish its citizens. So think of the quiet courage of a 20-year-old girl, dressed in white, standing in quiet dignity in the Colosseum, waiting to be torn apart by lions in front of a cheering crowd. She was refusing to worship Caesar as God, but she still acknowledged the Roman state's right to execute her for her disobedience. Yeah, I think that's really poignant, and to me a real challenge, because my reaction to state injustice is almost to shake my fist and, and get frustrated and, and want to respond. So, so how would I, how should we apply that principle today? Well, go back to our earlier discussion about the ambiguity over radicalization. I think there's a big confusion over what extreme, extremism actually is, and so it may well become illegal to raise an objection to transgender ideology, for example, even if that objection is couched in rational and courteous terms. In that case, the elders of this church should be prepared to go to prison. So we can courteously refuse to obey the state while still acknowledging its right to punish us for that disobedience. So you've made this big distinction between the role of the state and the role of the individual. But someone who sympathizes with terrorists might argue that in the modern world, that distinction has become blurred. Warfare today isn't about two professional armies lining up against each other, they might say. For example, nowadays we see a suicide bomber detonate a bomb at a pop concert in Manchester, killing young girls as they sang along to their favorite music. And we also see an operator sitting comfortably in an office in a military base in the US using a joystick to launch drone strikes which kill top terrorists while they attend a family wedding on the other side of the world. In, in a previous conversation we had on this subject, you called that argument the old chestnut about the difference between a freedom fighter and a terrorist. 
So how do you counter it? I remember coming across a quote which said, we can no longer afford the factor that one person's terrorist may yet be another's freedom fighter. Fighting for freedom may well be his or her purpose, but if the mission is undertaken through the employment of terroristic means, a terrorist, he or she must remain. Yes, I agree. Uh, The deployment of high-tech weaponry doesn't alter the basic fact that a state is engaged in an act of war to defend its citizens. So I personally can see no moral equivalence between a properly vetted drone strike and the decision made by an individual to murder 22 young girls at a pop concert. So at first glance, this distinction between the state and an individual makes the words of Christ much more understandable. When he tells us to love our enemies, he's addressing individuals. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says nothing about the state's God-given role to bring down punishment on the wrongdoer. That's how I read it. So when a, a Christian Navy SEAL guns down a group of ISIS fighters, He's acting as an instrument of the state, and provided he acts ethically within that role, provided he's not cruel unnecessarily, he's not contradicting scripture. Now, of course, some Christians disagree with my position, and historically, they were called pacifists. Some of them were the bravest men who ever lived. They acted as stretcher bearers, running through machine gun fire into no man's land to rescue their injured colleagues. They refused to carry a gun, and I salute their nobility. But the lives of their wives and children back home were saved by the guns fired by their comrades. You've been pretty clear, Jim, in defending the state's right to use violence. Some young adults listening might feel kind of uncomfortable hearing that. What would you say to people who feel really uneasy about state-sanctioned violence? Well, I understand the unease. You see, your generation has grown up with the fallout from the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. And I personally think that was a disastrous decision. So please don't interpret my defence of a state's theoretical right to go to war as a defence of Western policy over the last two decades. I think if your generation had lived through the war against Nazi Germany, then you might find my arguments more palatable. But there's a much deeper reason for your generation's discomfort with the idea that the state can use physical force to defend its citizens. And that's because your generation no longer values justice. So I'm going to tell you two stories, Ollie, to make my point. Here's the first one. During the troubles here in Northern Ireland, someone I know very well was called to the scene of a terrorist atrocity. A bomb had been detonated in a crowded space. And he was a young police constable at the time. The forensic team had completed their work, so my friend was handed a shovel and some plastic bags. His job was to scrape the remains of young men and women off the street. Now the sheer horror of that thing so gripped me I remember falling to my knees and crying out to God to bring down justice on the wicked men who had taken innocent lives. I was consumed with what the Bible calls righteous anger. I can remember some prayer meetings where older men prayed with voices shaking with anger at the injustice of terrorism. But now fast forward to the incident you mentioned earlier, the terrorist attack at the pop concert in Manchester. 22 people were killed, some of them younger than you. Now the reaction to that event astonished me. There was a rally held to honour the dead, and people stood with placards reading, Love Not Hate. And the crowd sang that Oasis song called, Don't Look Back in Anger. Now I put those two stories together, because they raise an important question. Consider those two responses to a terrorist atrocity. In the 1980s, a prayer meeting where evangelical Christians cry out to God for justice, and then 2017, a group of atheists sing, Don't Look Back in Anger. 
Which response fits better with Christ's command that we love our enemies? The cry for justice or the sound of don't look back in anger? We shouldn't think that love trumps justice. When Christ told us to love our enemies, he wasn't saying that justice no longer matters. The Christian story is not the triumph of love over justice. We talked a lot about that in our previous episode on the cross of Christ. The Christian story is about the reconciliation of love and justice. That is what the cross is all about, Jim, and and the cross demonstrated God's justice just as much as it demonstrated God's love. Both love and justice win in Christian thought. But I, I think we live in a culture that no longer values justice. Our public discourse no longer uses the categories of right and wrong. We can no longer talk about the battle between good and evil. All that's left is this, uh, is this mundane idea of cause and effect. Exactly. 22 precious human lives were cut down in Manchester. What a senseless waste of human potential. So of course we should look back in anger. We should cry out to God for justice. Now what we should not do is seek vengeance ourselves. Scripture forbids that. We have to trust God to execute justice. Down through the centuries, godly Christian men and women have endured terrible persecution because they trusted God to execute justice when he makes humanity stand before him at the great white throne. There will come a day when all the injustices and wickedness of men will be judged. Unless we are sheltering under the blood of Christ, that thought should frighten us. But the thought of God's final judgment has caused God's people to sing and rejoice for centuries. Just read the Psalms if you don't believe me. And it means we never have to seek our own vengeance. In some Islamic cultures, if my sister commits adultery, then I can undertake what is called an honour killing. She's brought disgrace on the family, and so I kill her as an act of vengeance to restore honour. Now, I think that's an outrageous belief, when you think about it. How self-important do I have to be to think that my personal honour is more important than God's justice? Honour killings emerge from a huge reservoir of conceit and self-importance, not of justice. We've talked about two big things so far in this conversation. Christ told us to love our enemies. First, he was talking to individuals, not saying anything about the role of the state. Secondly, he was not saying that love trumps justice. Christ cared deeply about justice, and so should we. And it's actually unloving to ignore justice. Let's move on to think then about our responsibilities as individuals. When we read those words from the Sermon on the Mount and apply them to our individual lives, a really difficult question arises. And that question is, should we forgive our enemies? This is a a very sensitive pastoral point. I remember a lady asking to speak with me. I had spoken at a church service in a different country, so I can tell this story. She had been married with three children. And one day her husband announced that he was leaving her to live with someone else. He ruined her financially. His actions caused the three children to lose their way in life. And he was entirely unrepentant. I had to follow my heart, he boasted to his friends. Now, this woman had been tortured by well-meaning Christians who told her that she had to forgive her husband. I wonder what you think about that, Ollie. Uh, It's a really complicated situation. So let's build up an answer by starting with the relatively easy elements. When someone sins against us and they then repent, then we are commanded in Scripture to forgive them. It doesn't matter how many times they repeat that cycle, even 70 times 7 to quote the Lord, we must forgive them once they repent. Now, of course, it's possible to forgive someone without trusting them the way you did before they sinned. But if they repent, 
we must forgive. Okay, but then what about the situation when someone refuses to repent? Well, obviously in the very small things of life, Paul reminds us that love covers all. I can't even count up the number of times my poor mum forgave me without even thinking about it when I was a teenager. So in the small things of life, we shouldn't expect a public act of repentance before opening your heart back to someone who has caused you hurt. But what about when a, a person commits a serious injustice and is entirely unrepentant? Well, again, let's start with the easy bit. The Bible commands us to pray for people like that, to long for the restoration. We are forbidden ever to become bitter towards them or to seek vengeance. We should long to forgive them, hoping and praying that they will repent so that forgiveness and reconciliation can flow back into the relationship. But what about the forgiveness itself? Well, we are told that we are to forgive as Christ forgave. But on what basis does God forgive? Does he forgive unrepentant people? Well, you say, when Christ was being nailed to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Well, that's true, of course. But he was praying specifically for the soldiers because they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't realize they were crucifying the Son of God. They were rough, brutalized men simply doing another day's work. So Christ intercedes for them, knowing their ignorance. But what about the religious rulers who stood around sneering at him? They had engineered his death. And the Apostle Peter tells us that Christ did not lash out at them, but he did entrust himself to him who judges justly. But surely human forgiveness isn't the same thing as divine forgiveness. I'm not the moral governor of the universe, so in that sense God has a problem which I don't have when it comes to forgiveness. Well, that argument is not wrong. So I'm going to offer you a model that might help us make sense of this difficult topic. So in the UK and Ireland, uh, buying a house is a, is a nail-biting moment. Right? You have to write a cheque for more money than you could ever imagine owning. And then you wait for that moment when your solicitor tells you that he has the title deeds of the house in his hands. At that point, you can heave a sigh of relief because the transaction is complete. Now, in the United States, they have a much more complicated, but I think a less stressful arrangement. It's a thing called an escrow arrangement. I have no idea what those letters mean, but here's how it works. I give my enormous check to a third party, and that third party keeps it safe. It will not be released until he has the title deeds. But he won't give me the title deeds until my cheque is cleared. Once the title deeds have been received and my cheque has been cleared, the third party gives me the deeds and the money to the buyer. So let me now apply that metaphor. If someone's sin has really caused hurt, I can hand my forgiveness to God for safekeeping, if you like. As far as I'm concerned, the forgiveness has been given. But God will only hand that on, as it were, when he receives repentance from the offending sinner. Once I get notified of repentance, then reconciliation can occur because the transmission of forgiveness can be acknowledged. Now, I don't know whether that illustration is helpful, but in extremely difficult pastoral situations, we should be careful not to add to a Christian's burden by asking them to ignore justice. We can hand our real, authentic forgiveness over to God for safekeeping, but it will only be cashed, if you like, once repentance has occurred. I like that picture, Jim. I I think it is helpful for someone who's experienced a lot of trauma uh, when the perpetrator isn't repentant. But in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus does tell us explicitly to forgive people. And he goes on to say something that that I always um, find quite striking when I read it. And actually, it was something we we just put up on our Instagram um, earlier this week. He said, If you do not forgive others their sins your father will not forgive your sins. 
Well, the lesson here, Ollie, is never to base an important principle on a single proof text. Because later on in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus goes into much more detail on how the process of forgiveness should work. And he does that by telling a story. We call it the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in that story, a man is forgiven by God. But he then refuses to forgive a fellow servant over a relatively trivial matter. And the Lord makes it clear that the fellow servant repented. But the man refused to respond to that repentance with forgiveness. And so he ends up being punished by God. So when we look at the verse you quote from the Sermon on the Mount, in the light of the more detailed teaching, we see that repentance is implicit in the process. That's really, really useful, Jim, to have that that surrounding context. Linking this idea of forgiveness back to our earlier conversation about terrorism, Jim, I guess the final question to ask is, can terrorists be forgiven? Well, thank God there is forgiveness available to anyone, even the terrorist. But if they want to receive forgiveness from God, they must repent of their gruesome and wicked sins. One of Jesus' first disciples was a man called Simon the Zealot, and he was a terrorist, and he did exactly that. He repented and was forgiven, and you will meet that forgiven terrorist in heaven one day. And the same hope is offered to all terrorists. We love them by telling them the gospel, not by ignoring justice. At a really practical level, I think the Prison Christian Fellowship is an enormously strategic ministry here, because prison is a breeding ground for radicalization. And the only way to counteract bad ideas is with good ideas. And here's the thing, the atheistic West has no good ideas. Richard Dawkins' suggestion for the problem of Islamic extremism was to beam porn, erotic video he called it, into Iran. Well, if that's all they've got, the atheistic West offers porn and Call of Duty. You will never counteract the bad ideas of Islamic extremism with ideas like that. The West is spiritually bankrupt. And so things like the Prison Christian Fellowship have this great honour to bring the best of ideas, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into people's lives so that they can receive forgiveness. Thanks, Jim. I think a great way to respond to this episode would be to pray for the work of organisations like the Prisons Christian Fellowship and other similar groups who do an amazing work in taking the gospel to people who've caused great harm and pain, yet in Jesus they are able to find wonderful forgiveness. And it's a forgiveness that doesn't come at the expense of justice, but because of God's perfect justice seen at the cross. It's also a wonderful thing for those who have been hurt by the evil of others, that one day God promises that all wrongs will be righted and all injustices brought to an end. Thank you for listening to episode 14. It's been great to have your company and We really hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. If you have, please do share it with friends and family or post a review on Apple Podcasts. We really love hearing from you guys. It's a great encouragement to Jim and I. If you'd like to suggest a topic or a question we can talk about together in future episodes, do email us at theequipproject at gmail.com or send us a message via Instagram. 